the reading for this service um, speaks to the continuing nature of the conversation and work that surrounds social justice. Um, and I'm pulling it from Fanny Barrier-Williams, uh, who is a civil rights and also a Unitarian Universalist uh, figure who spoke very frankly and sometimes in jarring language about race in, a, uh, in the early 20th century. Um, so it's, they're not exact quotes, I'm changing some of them because when you read, when you read her language, it's sometimes a little squeamish. Um, but she spoke very frankly to both races of people um, at the time. So <clears throat> this centers around African-Americans and public opinion. The average white American knows that the African-American only as he sees him on the street or engaged in some employment that does not permit of association. It is too much to say that public opinion concerning the African-American in this country is largely based on ignorance of nearly everything that is good and prophetic in the life of the race. The ever-increasing exceptions to, <laughs> to African-American ignorance, poverty, and social disorder have not yet made much an impression on public opinion. The status of this race is fixed by impoverished conditions of the majority and not by the noble achievements of the ever-increasing few. This tangible but all-sovereign thing called public opinion is a good deal of a despot when it comes to showing favors or doing justice to those who are weak but deserve justice. Although public opinion is as apt to be wrong as right, and perhaps is more often wrong than right, it cannot be easily changed or placated, and it yields neither to argument or tears, but to the dissolving processes of time. Then she goes on to say, it may not be very consoling to African Americans of this country to look lovingly in the face of public opinion and read in its stern countenance a fixed purpose to keep us waiting and no hint of how long. Our assurance is that given, enough, given time enough, public opinion will change and change for the better. Every generation asks for a change in the nature of a more enlightened public opinion, but the answer is usually made to the succeeding generation and seldom to the one asking it. So to spare Alan more of having to do all the heavy lifting for running the service today, thank you, Alan. Um, I'll just move right into the intro of what the Social Justice Committee is calling from words to deeds. Last year, we spoke a lot about personal stories. We talked about constructs and context. And this year, <laughs> a very robust conversation at our first uh, meeting of the year. One of the things we discussed was, you know, how do you present the idea of doing social justice work in a context where we all know that the work is always continuing, that the conversation always happens, that, that it's a long road to make a more perfect and just society where after nine months we just don't go, all right, social justice solved. That was awesome, let's have lunch. Um, it doesn't really work like that. And I struggled with sort of the reading and how to present what we're talking about because that can be arduous and it, you know, kind of the idea of presenting lifelong work can be deflating. Uh, but, and struggled with how to do that and why. And I just happened to read an article this morning from Friday that brought a lot of clarity to it about a woman in Brooklyn who runs a nonprofit in Bed-Stuy to help underprivileged kids. Some of you may have read this article, um, but 
in her window, she presented scenes from a horror movie that included uh, little kids being hung from nooses, and she did it in the window of her storefront. Um, but because she made it out of brown paper, craft paper, in Clinton Hill, there were little brown children being hung from nooses in the window during Halloween. Um, obviously, uh, and it was right next door to a middle uh, elementary school. One of the parents filmed it, put it on Facebook. I think we all know how this happens. Uh, she was, <clears throat> she came under a lot of scrutiny and wrote a very heartfelt apology that led to a frank conversation between her and the NAACP. And she spoke a lot about how she should have known what that would have meant in the community where she was, but she didn't really think about it. And that that is part of the work that she needs to do despite the work that she's doing at her nonprofit. And the article contrasted that with a scene from Long Island where a man uh, surrounding nooses uh, hung an empty noose from his tree for his Halloween decoration. And his mail carrier, who was African-American, felt uh, received the message that I think nooses hanging from trees gives to every African-American. Uh, this man said that he intended it for a skeleton to be hanging from the noose. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Um, and he was strident in his response to contrast to the other lady who, and he said, that was 100 years ago. We haven't, we haven't had any lynchings in 100 years. You guys just need to get over it. You're trying to make it an African-American thing, and it's just not. And in New Jersey, <laughs> a law firm put out pumpkins that were all black and had white eyes and a nose and a giant red mouth in which would call uh, to African-Americans would say, speak a certain about images of blackface. Uh, and the law firm, I had no idea that that was the case. I bought them from Bed Bath & Beyond. Bed Bath & Beyond was just making these pumpkins. I bought them, I thought they were nice. And Bed Bath & Beyond had to put out a statement saying that they were aware of cultural insensitivities and they had to pull them from the shelves. And I'm not bringing that up to talk about any specific one of those instances, but those instances exist in a context that crystallized for me why we need, still need to have these conversations and why they're important and why we need to look at our own personal lives and look at the own personal work that we're doing in our communities. And with that, we're going to present stories. Uh, the first part is going to be the current work that we're doing at the fourth Lauren and Carol are going to be talking, and Judy, are going to be talking about guests at your table, helping hands, and Fred's Foods Pantry. And more, uh, and to piggyback off of that, Susan and Beth are going to come with thoughts about, sorry, it's not Susan and Beth, Susan and Brenda, sorry, sorry, Beth. Um, Susan and Brenda are going to come and share stories about how we find balance in giving. Is there a limit? Do we run risks of burning ourselves out? And what does that look like? And finally, for the work we can want to continue to do here, we, the Social Justice Committee has developed a sort of method or 
context for how this work should be done. If we have an idea, if someone is struck by inspiration, how do you turn that thought and that, uh, that idea into action? And Alan and Jim are going to be presenting that. So with that, I'll call up Lauren. Good morning. <clears throat> I'm going to be reading A Moment for All Ages. It was written by Reverend Laura Randall. Um, today I would like to tell you about women who saw a woman who saw something was wrong in their communities and worked to make life better and more fair for their friends and neighbors. Over a hundred years ago in the town of Lawrence, Massachusetts, there was a large factory called a textile mill that turned raw cotton into fabric. The people who worked there were immigrants who had come from many different countries. Many of them were also women. They came here to find a new life for themselves in the U.S. In addition to immigrants, um, they worked long hours and very hard in unsafe conditions in order to earn a living. One day, the factory owners decided that the workers sh would have to work even faster, with, but with lower pay, so the workers went on strike. That uh, strike is when employees stop working in order to protest unfair or unsafe conditions. In 1912, the factory workers in Lawrence went on strike to protest being told to work harder and faster for less pay. The workers marched in the streets for months to protest these conditions. During the protests, a group of young women from the textile mill carried a banner that said, we want bread, but we need roses too. The message on the sign came from a speech that a young immigrant worker named Rose Schneiderman had given the year before. Rose had said, the worker must have bread, but she must have roses too. Rose Schneiderman was saying that people need food to get by, but they also need things like beauty, love, dignity in their lives. Food and shelter are very important, and without them we cannot survive. But we also need things to enjoy, like music, art, and fun with friends. Rose Schneiderman and the women who went on strike were saying that immigrant workers like themselves deserve not only enough food and a safe home, but also a chance to experience the beauty and joy of life. Just like the people in society who had more money and power than they did. They were saying it was important to meet the needs and body of the heart. But because of this message, the strike known as the Bread and Roses strike Thanks to the women leading the bread and roses strike, workers in the textile mills of New England were eventually given an increase in wages. The strike also inspired a poem called Bread and Roses, which was later turned into a song. The song has now been sung for over 100 years, helping inspire people to work for nights, rights and dignities of all people. Remember the women who also, courageous women are working to make the world a better place today. The Unitarian Universalist Service Committee, called the US, UUSC for short, works with women all over the world who are leading their communities toward change. One woman the UUSC is currently partnering with is Monica Serka. Monica founded an organization called Activate Labs, which brings art, music, and storytelling into spaces that migrants are passing through as they seek safety and a better life in the United States. These places include shelters, transit stations, and border crossings. Like the women in Bread and Roses Strike who understood that people need to have their bodies and their hearts cared for, Monica knows that joy and creativity are essential human needs, just like food and shelter. 
That is why Monica and her team, with help from UUSC, bring art, music, video-making supplies into places migrants are traveling through. This helps the migrants who are often having a hard time because they have had to leave their homes, express how they feel, have fun, and have a good experience amid so many challenges. As Monica explains, we need joy, creativity, art, and self-expression to return us to ourselves. This is an important message for all of us to remember. Joy, creativity, dignity, and beauty are just as important to people as food to eat. As we work to make the world a better place, it is important to make sure everyone can have food and beauty and bread and roses. Um, I do have a brochure for the USC, and I have ordered boxes that should be here either next Sunday or the Sunday following that we can, we usually, if you choose to participate, put a box at the table and do collections through the holidays. And then you can either convert it to a check yourself, and I can mail all the checks together, or you can uh, mail it to the USC yourself. So I'll have those boxes available, if not next week, the week after. And um, you can take them home and participate. Good morning. I'm going to talk to you in what voice I have. Um, so first I'll say a little bit about the program that we are involved with, and then I'll say a little bit about why I personally am attracted to it, and, uh, and then I'll tell you a little bit about the particular family that we have worked with. Um, the umbrella group um, for the organization is called Hearts and Homes for Refugees. They operate out of Huntington, Long Island. And last year, they launched the Helping Hands program in partnership with Catholic Charities to assist refugees and asylum seekers who may no longer be in the initial resettlement period. But they are here, and they sometimes need some help. Um, there are refugees and there are asylees, which is the family that we've been working with, and they are people who've been granted temporary asylum, but but they're still, it's not finalized, so they're still kind of in limbo. Um, so the program connects the refugees and asylees with volunteers who are uh, looking to support and advocate for the refugee community. Um, and Catholic Charities identifies the needs, and then Helping Hands makes the match, as they did with us. And basically, it's faith groups and church groups that, uh, that are the volunteers. Um, and the clients that they find come from various places, sometimes some from Africa. There have been clients from Gambia, Central African Republic. Mostly, they are from um, Latin America, um, Honduras, um, El Salvador, which is where the family that we have is from, um, Haiti, Guatemala. Um, and um, they, they work in, um, the families are in the Bronx and uh, Westchester County and Rockland County. Um, and the main things they need are things like furniture and toiletries. They need gas for ga gas card, you know, uh, gas cards for the car, um, if they have one. Um, um, they need grocery cards, they need um, pharmacy cards, and they need uh, Uber 
cards because, you know, in Rockland especially and in Westchester as well, the, the transportation is very poor and the public transportation, so they need help getting to work, getting to school. Um, so I was very excited when Jim Rodriguez um, brought this program to our attention last spring and, and gave us the opportunity to help. Um, I have a lot of feeling for this community. Um, I have worked for four years at uh, Neighbors Link in Mount Kisco, uh, which is, uh, it's a community center. Um, they, they I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about it as, as kind of an aside um, to, to say how I, how I got my uh, interest in this program. Um, they started with the, you know, the guys who would stand on the street corner waiting for work, the, the day laborers, they'd wait for somebody to come and hire them. And, um, you know, people in the community in Mount Kisco didn't like that, of course. So they, so they built this, um, this place. And, um, and now it has expanded into not only a place for workers to be hired um, without being taken advantage of. I mean, there are stories about how, you know, the, the, uh, the guys would come and pick them up and they'd take them to some place and they would do a day's work and um, they'd go and drop them off somewhere, you know, 10 miles away and they wouldn't pay them. And, you know, they really got um, taken advantage of. Um, so now it's all very official and, and uh, this is a place where the workers can be hired, but they also have preschool, they have English classes, they have, uh, which is what I do, um, they have a community garden in Mount Kisco and then once a week or so they, they um, share the bounty with, uh, you know, with the people there, the fresh vegetables and so on. Um, they have a preschool and, um, you know, they just, they offer a lot of services. They did a, they did, we were very involved in the um, Greenlight New York program last spring where, where we were advocating for um, people to get, be able to get driver's licenses without uh, questions about their immigration status because, you know, people were not able to, to get jobs. They were not able to get to work, get to school and so on. So, so happily that passed and, um, and so, um, so that's a good thing. Um, they have, in addition to English classes that I did there, they also have, um, they have had clinics, uh, not medical clinics, but, but legal clinics where um, this was, they haven't done, done them so much in the last few months, but for the time when, the, when things were really, uh, you know, in the news every day about what was going on at the border and families being separated, um, we had to, we, we, they get, they also get pro bono legal help from immigration lawyers there. So w the volunteers had to interview people and we would prepare the paperwork to give to the immigration lawyers to kind of speed the process along. And we would have to ask them things like, um, you know, if you get deported, uh, what do you want to do with your children? Do you want to take your children with you or do you want them to stay here? Do you have somebody to take care of your children? Do you have money? Do you have a bank account? Do you have somebody who you can trust to handle your money to take care of your children? You know, and you, you just kind of realize what these people are, are living through and it, it's really, uh, 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 can be nightmarish. And some of them have children back in the countries that they came from that they, they haven't seen for so long. Um, 
I have I had one woman who comes from Guatemala. Her son happily just came, just got here a couple of months ago. He's 20 years old. She hasn't seen him since he's been five. And, um, you know, they don't have internet. They don't have Skype. They don't, you know, they just don't see them. I mean, they leave them with grandparents, but they don't see them. So I have a lot of um, feeling for this community. I know a lot of people personally. I've worked with them. And um, so, um, so as I said, when, when Jim uh, talked about this, this program, this helping hands to help uh, refugees and asylum seekers, I was very uh, into it, and I am very into it. Um, the family that we have through helping hands is a mother and son from El Salvador. Um, the mother works in a kitchen. Um, I assume that means in a restaurant. Um, and the son, Jaime, is in his last year of high school. Uh, Jim and I met with him over the summer. He's a very shy, very sweet young man. Uh, he wants to be a mechanic, uh, maybe an architect. Um, but he first, he has to finish school. Um, and he told us things that he and his mother needed, the blankets, the pillows, the, you know, um, the supermarket, the drugstore gift cards, and so on. Um, they needed they needed a room divider because I mean he's a I don't know if he was seventeen or eight, I guess by now he's eighteen year old young man and his mother who are sharing a room in somebody's house and that's you know that this is where they live uh, so they needed a room divider which happily we could provide um, the only thing that we have not yet provided for them that we've had some trouble getting is a laptop which he needs for school um, and so we uh, Jim has some feelers out I have some feelers out from possible for possible donations um, Bill Hart this morning just coincidentally talked to us about the idea of possibly several of us chipping in maybe you know whatever $25 each or something and just buying a computer for him uh, buying a laptop for him um, so, but but first we want to see if these donations, the leads that we have pan out for the donations. So uh, we have to, uh, I think within a week or two, we will get back to you if we, if we want to try to do that um, fundraising business for the, for the laptop. So we will keep you posted on that, but that should be coming very soon if, it's, if we don't get, get it otherwise because it is the end of October already. He, you know, he needs it for school. Um, so the way Helping Hands works is they match the, the volunteer group, which is us, uh, with one family at a time. And when each client has had their needs met, they match you up with another family if you choose to continue to participate. So that is something that we will have to decide as a congregation, and I hope that uh, we will do that. Um, Oh, and I'll just finish by um, mentioning one other project that we were involved in uh, last spring, last April, I think, um, which was called the Liberty Bike Ride. And um, some of you may be aware that we there was there was a, it was called the Liberty Bike Ride. They rode from um, Northampton, Massachusetts, to um, I guess Liberty State Park in New, in New Jersey, near you know across from the Statue of Liberty, and it was a fundraising bike ride. Uh, they, they it was for 
it's called the Pioneer Valley Workers Center, which was an organization dedicated to protecting immigrant workers' rights. Um, and we helped by providing uh, a stopover for them. So they came, they ate, um, some people prepared uh, dinner and food. We were able to get them over to the health club so they could take showers, and then they slept on the floor. <laughs> so, but you know, it was some place for them to stop over, and so we helped them in, in that way. And um, yeah, so, okay. Good morning. For the past 10 years, Friday mornings find me in the basement of St. Peter's Church in Peekskill, stocking the shelves of Fred's Food Pantry in preparation for distribution to clients on Saturday morning. We volunteers bring out food from the storage area, put away donations that have come in during the week and unload the pallets of food delivered from Feeding Westchester, which is where we get a lot of the basics that we have for the food pantry. Feeding Westchester gets all kinds of corporate donations of food, and we are able to buy that food for pennies on the dollar. Often we also get food for free from them. They'll get a huge we had a huge donation of uh, Starbucks coffee one time, which was very popular. Um, we, buy, we also bag fresh produce from local community gardens. Uh, Hilltop Hanover gives us food. Garden of Hope gives us food. Graymore gives us food. Mary Noel gives us food. All of that food gets bagged in bags and uh, are ready for distribution. Once, twice a month, we get a green thumb delivery from Feeding Westchester, which is what I did this Friday. And it was late, and it was huge. So we were bagging peppers and tomatoes and 10 boxes of sweet potatoes. It's hard work. But people have fresh produce to eat. Uh, it's, we're a motley group. Some of us have been there from the beginning. Others come and go. We are from many different faith communities and walks of life, but we've developed a great pride in what we do and a lot of camaraderie. People ask me, who was Fred? Fred's food pantry came out of a dream from an activist in Peekskill called Fred London. And he was a Purple Heart vet. He worked a lot with homeless vets in Peekskill, and he wanted some kind of a a food pantry for the Peekskill community. There were food pantries in faith um, churches and things, but they were small. And a lot of the Peekskill people were going up into Putnam County and using their food pantries, and they were getting kind of huffy that all these people from Peekskill were coming to them. So he teamed up with Jeannie Bloom, who was the executive director of CHOP at that time, and they worked very hard to establish a food pantry in Peekskill. Um, they also had a lot of support from PAPA, which is Peekskill Area Pastors Association, of which we're a member, and a lot of other local groups. A great many people were involved in this. 
Unfortunately, Fred got cancer and passed away shortly before the food pantry opened. So they decided in tribute to, to name the, can the uh, food pantry for Fred. I was there at one of the organizational meetings, and I know a lot of other people from, from Fourth UU were there as well. Um, Helen Miser, who was our representative on PAPA, told us about this meeting and felt that this was something that Fourth UU could get behind. We had done a variety of volunteer projects for Jam Peak House, which is um, the homeless shelter in Peekskill. Our youth group came and did projects. We used to cook a hot meal once a month and bring it to Jam Peak. So when the call came out, a lot of us stepped up. Uh, the organization was at St. Peter's Church, and St. Peter's Church houses the pantry because they have the space, and they were able to donate the, the uh, they, don't pay, they don't pay them rent, which is a big deal. So they, I had two choices. You could go in on Friday and stock the shelves, or you could go in on Saturday and help distribute the food. And I did do that a couple of times. But stocking the shelves was very meaningful to me. And why would you say that? I spent a lot of my adult life having to do things and think about things. And um, Mark is not here, but he talked one time about getting a job where it was very basic and routine and how liberating that was. And that's how I feel about this. About this. It's physically challenging, uh, especially unloading pallets of canned goods, bags of rice and produce, but it's very rewarding and it's very satisfying. It is direct, it is concrete, it's supplying a basic human need to people, and I find it very satisfying. Thank you. So next, we'll hear from two people uh, who will describe um, their thoughts on balance and giving. So first, Susan. Let me get going because I know that we're time is running out here and we've got to still have more to talk about. Um, this subject is how do we do it all? And there is so much to do. There are so many people hurting. There's so much need. How do we decide what we do? I grew up on a farm in Ohio, went to a Methodist church, and was taught all my life that part of our role as human beings was to help one another. And that was my whole background. If I wasn't involved in some kind of community service, I felt empty. I felt that I wasn't doing my part. So community service has always been part of my life, and I think it's part of why I wanted to become a Unitarian. I came to New York. I married a, a Jewish guy. And one of the things that we've talked about, my husband and I, is the concept in Judaism of something called, and I hope I pronounce it correctly, it's, it's called uh, tikkun olan. And it means mending the broken world. And that's part of a, a, a whole 
uh, Judaic process of mending what's wrong in the world, that that's your role, that's your job. And we here think to ourselves, well, we've got so much to do. We've got families. We've got jobs. We've got commuting. We've got a, uh, our uh, pets to take care of. We've got shopping. All these things that are in our lives that uh, take up time, take up space, take up financial uh, requirements. How do we know what to give? How do we know how much to do? And how do we know when we might get burned out? I went through a period several years ago when I got involved in quite a few things. And uh, what happened uh, in one instance was I was driving to Danbury. And unlike myself, I didn't look at the gas tank. And I ran out of gas on the side of the road on the expressway where there were like eight uh, lanes of traffic going back and forth. And I didn't know what to do. So I walked down. I saw an over. I saw a, a gas station. I saw an underpass, and I walked down under it. And to my amazement, there was a path under there, and it looked like a lot of people had been under there. It looked like, I don't know, it kind of looked like people had actually been living under there or something, which was a shock to me. So I went to the gas station. The guy who was so kind, I think his name was Joe, uh, said, I'm going to take you back to your car. So it, take, it got the gas, went back to the car. I wanted to give him a $20 bill. You know, he wouldn't take it. Uh, he said, you do something for someone else. And, you know, pass this along. And I said, you know, <clears throat> I came under this underpass. What is that? How did that get there? And he said, you know, we have homeless people here. There are immigrants and people in this community that don't have a place to live. I was in total shock when I heard that. And I said, I got to do something. And I, I went back. Um, I got involved with the Salvation Army in Putnam. Uh, I got involved with literacy volunteers uh, in Putnam. And I, I became, I, I said, I didn't see this. I had blinders on. So we need to not only help each other, but we need to look out to what's out around us right here. I'm not talking about, well, there's so much out in the rest of the world, everything, there's so much happening. But we would go crazy if we thought about all of that. I mean, there is so much to reach out to. So let's decide what's most important, what will most impact our community and help to mend the broken world. Uh, one of the things that I have kept on my desk um, always to remind myself um, and I think I sent this to Judy because I was just so amazed at all the stuff she was doing. Uh, be a, as it comes from Rumi, be a lamp or a lifeboat or a ladder. Help someone's soul heal. Walk out of your house like a shepherd. Well, I sometimes walk out of the house like a wolf, not a shepherd. <laughs> Uh, but I try to remember this. And this morning before I came, I was thinking, oh, my heavens, I remember. This necklace was made for me by a lady who came from China who was, it was somebody we were helping in the literacy volunteers in Putnam. And it's a Buddhist knot. And I was thinking the other day, well, we had social interactions with them, a lot of the immigrants from, uh, from uh, um, Brewster. And uh, I was thinking, okay, you know something? We can reach out. We can do something. We can't do everything, but we can do something. So let's decide 
what's most important. So I'm going to be speaking mostly about something that uh, we don't like to talk about um, on money. <laughs> uh, you save some, you spend some, you give some away. In my studies on prosperity, every book, teacher, and teacher brings up the same basic principles. You save some, you spend some, you give some away. However, part of saving, the saving part and the spending part makes sense to me. I understand it, but give some away. Um, that doesn't mean just, doesn't that just mean we end up with less? <laughs> I didn't really understand this concept, but when I delve deeper into this truth, I realized that money is like water. It has to keep flowing, never stagnant. Cup full, but never overflowing. Therefore, you must pour some out or drink some to be able to receive some more. That started to make sense to me. It is said that when you are most in need, that's exactly when you should practice the act of giving. It exercises our trust in Gus. <laughs> I call it Gus, God, universe, spirit. That our cup will be refilled again, that trust. Although sometimes it did make me feel like I was gambling. <laughs> um, even the word money, it's so crass to say out loud, let alone in church. Uh, it's something we're not supposed to talk about. Most of us carry a certain, uh, certain shame in even mentioning it. But money is not a thing. It's an energy. It's a vibrational energy to tap into. Well, if it is, please tell me how so I could tap into that energy. Uh, <laughs> yet, it comes up, the same principles come up. Save some, spend some, give some away. Many religious scriptures, it is said that tithing, giving away 10% of your income, to wherever or whoever gives you spiritual nourishment, such as uh, church, spiritual leader, ashram, etc., that's where the money should go. However, I believe that it should be given to wherever or whoever calls to your heart. If a certain organization that you deeply care about, that, uh, that is helping a cause that you deeply care about, then perhaps that's where your money should follow, where you need to give some away. Or if your dear Aunt Matilda needs a hip replacement and that is where your heart is, then that's where the money should follow. Whether it be climate change, homelessness, animal protection, child abuse, women's rights, your church, your spiritual leader, yoga teacher, or your dear Aunt Matilda, um, giving away money must come from your heart. And it's the same thing with your time. A place, it needs to come from a place of of honesty to yourself, never from a place of blind obligation. So when is giving too much? I suppose it comes from the same place, honesty with yourself. Can you do without this money without going without? Can you do without this time without going without? Only you can answer your own limits and what you feel comfortable giving away. And only you can answer that question. Thank you. Thank you. So Jim and I are going to wrap up. Um, I'm going to read through this fairly quickly because the gist of it is <coughs> in the newsletter already. 
Um, but we wanted to, starting last spring, we had a concept that uh, <clears throat> we would try to find a way to keep the momentum going. So our theme is don't lose that thought. <laughs> so just as a reminder, our fourth UU mission statement reads in part, we commit ourselves to social justice through action in our local community and the larger world. But often, as has been said many times today already, we don't know necessarily how to prioritize among the many possibilities or even what options there are. We've heard some personal stories about involvement in social action and some thoughts regarding limitations on time and resources. Our history indicates that sometimes an action stems from a personal commitment of time and energy. Other times it's appropriate to seek involvement from a larger group or from the whole congregation. Sometimes we read about a topic in the news. Uh, other times something will just pop into our heads. Um, and maybe we want to act in support of another group. Um, so as suggested, the Social Justice Committee would like to act as a clearinghouse for ideas both to track items of involvement and interest and to potentially match issues with resources, for example, by publishing, publicizing ideas and activities and giving people an opportunity to participate or to get more information. So to facilitate this, we've set up an email address. It's sjc at fourthuu.org that you can use to submit potential topics for social action and the Social Justice Committee will be organizing itself to handle these inputs. Um, we'll also have some volunteers from the Social Justice Committee who will be available to talk to you about these ideas if you want. So this, as I said, it's already in the fourth word this week. It will be in again, and there will also be a poster on the bulletin board. And at this time, uh, Jim is going to close us out with some final thoughts. Um, so uh, I, I think in the interest of time, I'm going to keep this um, brief. But um, so there's a couple of um, quotes that as we were thinking about the uh, theme of this um, service that came to my mind. Um, I think I've mentioned in the past um, that um, I've, I've often been um, deeply affected by one of the sermons that Dr. Keene gave. Um, called the drum major instinct, and I talked about it in a previous service. One of the things that he talked about was, um, and and this is a, a keen quote. Um, he talked about the idea of service, um, and he said, "Everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato, Plato and Aristotle to serve." You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics in physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. And the other, the other quote that comes to my mind when we think about uh, serving and, um, and change is Margaret Mead's. Um, I'm sure many of you have heard this quote. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world Indeed, um, it's the only thing that ever has. And when I think about those two sentiments, the idea that service and just serving uh, with, a, a great, with grace um, and a heart full of love, um, as well as the idea that bringing a small group of people together can change the world, 
Um, I, I think, uh, and, and far be it from me to um, argue or um, uh, with Dr. King or, or Margaret Mead, but I think there's some other things and I want to mention. And so one of the things that we talk about with social justice and, in, and a big word that we use in social justice movements nowadays is the notion of allyship. And allyship is critically important. We can talk about this more in the future. But one of the things that um, an ally is defined with is, uh, by is um, allyship is an active, consistent, and arduous practice of unlearning and reevaluating in which a person in a position of privilege and power seeks to operate in solidarity with the marginalized groups. So in many ways, what we've heard today is talks about the work that we do with others, with the immigrant. Um, and many of, of the uh, activities that we talked about are in service to them. But there's some things that we have to remember when we're involved in allyship. And this is what, when we talk about the importance of bringing your ideas and your thoughts back to the Social Justice Committee, one of the things that we have to be uh, mindful of is that sometimes, sometimes we can engage in social justice or engage in things that we think are making a difference, but they might not necessarily make a difference. And so I think one of the things that we can talk about is um, ways in which we can support the work of this group to make sure that the change that we are um, trying to make um, is the change that's necessary in the world. Um, so, um, so as I said, um, we're available in the Social Justice Committee to talk about your ideas, to talk about the things that bring you to, um, I think as Brenda was talking about, that sort of inspire you to, um, to, see, uh, to seek change in the world. And as I said, we can do it um, as a group. Um, and I think at the, um, the next social justice service that we have, we'll talk a lot more about allyship and what that means as a congregation. Um, I'm going to stop there because, as I said, I realized we have, uh, we're um, way beyond our time. So I'm going to take us through the closing.